Greetings in Jesus' name. It's a blessing to see he's all here and hear the reports and the letters. I just thought it's an interesting theme that's going through the service this morning. Surrender. And this is Independence Day week, which was not surrender. Independence and surrender are and they're anti, they're opposites, they're oxymorons. Independence and surrender. And um, so I want to thank you, Micah, for that message this morning. You didn't mention Independence Week, but I will. <laughs> Independence Day this week, July 4th, on Wednesday. It has been 242 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed there in Philadelphia on a hot July day. I think we know what that's like, don't we? They were sweating it out. They didn't have AC. They were there near the ocean, sea level, hot day, working out this document of a declaration Churches all over the country today will have messages that will reflect that Independence Day. And so I thought I would do my two cents in that. Let us stand for a word of prayer if you can, please, if you don't mind. Let's just pray. Lord, we are thankful to you that you have won our independence, Lord, from the devil. And, Lord, when we surrender to you, we become a part of that independence, Lord. Yes, Lord, it's an imperfect independence. Yes, Lord, we know that, that, um, that there are failures, there are battles, as well as victories. But, Lord, you have fully overcome the enemy, and you have fully guaranteed victory, Lord, in the end. And of that we are grateful. We're grateful, Lord, that we can gather together, that we can encourage each other, and that we can also leave here with a spring in our steps and a gospel on our lips and a joy in our hearts because of you. You are the answer. You are the reason. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, be with us this morning. Grant us, Lord, both an understanding and an inspiration of your will and purpose for us as we live the remaining years of our lives here. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, that the um, today, the Sunday before Independence Day, there are a lot of churches that will speak on it, and there will be the politically conservative churches that will extol the benefits of the war for independence, and they will call for a restoration of this country back to its supposedly Christian roots. I know Eldon's spoken that very well, and I don't think I can improve on that. So they will celebrate this week, even as they mourn its supposedly loss of traditional values. And they will call their people to continue to fight in this culture war. 
Then there are the politically liberal churches that will recognize the event. They will, in response to this week and July 4th, Independence Day in America, they will voice the social inequities that they see everywhere, the inhuman treatments of the supposedly inhuman treatments, well, of the immigrants and the blacks and the women and the LB, how does initials? LB, LG, BTQs. <laughs> and they will tend to speak despairingly of this holiday. They will encourage their people to stand up for the victims of society and help topple the oppressive patriarchal system that is in place. Then there are other churches that believe that religion and politics must remain separate. It's okay to be politically active, to help support societal causes, to vote and to run for political office. Only don't bring it into worship. Christian worship and patriotism doesn't mix. So keep the church and the state separate. So they call their people together to worship Jesus and to keep their political views out of the sacred. So which of the, which one of these views do you ascribe to? None of the above. That's often, sometimes, and Jesus found himself in this called the false dilemma many times where none of the options are good options. And, and we find ourselves, I mean, I can think of history when, when the, when the, you had the, the liberal and conservative divide and, and, and you look at, well, none of them were good options. There has to be a, a, a better way. And that's common, so. Which one of these views are correct? And none is the correct answer. This morning, I want to give an explanation, uh, the biblical perspective and answer. I feel somewhat inadequate to actually give a full answer. So you have to be satisfied with the best that I can do. But there are several reasons why I chose to do that. First of all, it's July 1st, so it's close to the 4th. The second reason is, as we were in the Indiana meetings, and we're discussing a replacement name for the Ebenezer churches, uh, that name is not going to fly. Uh, that name has too much baggage for some people somewhere, so we're going to have to choose a new name. And there was a fairly strong consensus emerged that Anabaptist should be a part of that name. Okay? Because Anabaptist is actually an identity. And following here, I'm going to read part of the discourse, discourse given by one brother. He said, Anabaptism has a very distinctly different theology, historically and presently, from Protestant and Reformed theology. A lot of people don't understand that. There's a whole different approach to theology, to the general overview of the scriptures, about the two beliefs. Anabaptists believed and hopefully do today, in taking the word of God literally and practically. And many of the others don't. And that continues to go on today. And so the idea is there's no better term on the 500-year on the different approach on theology. And he continues on, said, too many people have been in our midst that scoff at this and say, I'm just a Christian. I don't know what this, all this Anabaptism is about. And they don't understand, and often they have evangelical Protestant theology mixed in their own thinking. 
And they won't understand it unless they understand the great divide. There is a market difference. And then there was a few named separation of church and state in the way we're going to discuss this morning. Modesty address, believers' baptism, not going to war, not swearing of oath, not suing at the law, and a whole host of other areas of theology that come out of the Sermon on the Mount and out of Paul's epistles, and we believe them literally, and we embrace them, and we're not ashamed of them. And it was stated that that is something that our next generation should study, Anabaptist history. So that's the second reason I like to talk about it this morning is because it's not always well understood and the next generation, if they don't pick it up, is lost. And then there was another one. Some of you were uh, at the singing on Sunday night and you heard John D. Martin's short <laughs> sermonette uh, that he began to give. He was asked by a billboard caller. Why is there so much suffering in his world? Why doesn't God do something about the suffering and the, the just the chaos in this world? Why doesn't God do something? And his answer to the caller was, God has done something. God has established the church. And the church, in general, by and large, has failed. The church, when it compromised, and here comes the just war theory. And then you have the Crusades, and you have the Inquisitions, and you have the Salem Witch Trials, and you have Christians contributing to the suffering and chaos in the world, rather than an answer to it. And then he added divorce and remarriage. This is a social phenomenon that the church has given up on. And so you have these broken homes and marriages and children and a a continual chain going on. And in the church, instead of standing up and putting a, a, a standard, they have gone along with it and they contribute to the chaos. And then he mentioned accumulation of wealth. And I don't remember what he said about the social evils that come from that, only that the church has largely abandoned that teaching. So for those three reasons, I'd like to speak this morning on the two-kingdom view this morning. It's the, it's the week of independence. It has been said that our young people need to understand it. And, and the church, unless it maintains that clear standard, contributes to the chaos in society rather than an answer to it. So we believe in the separation of church and state, do we not? But not, but we believe that the two entities are so different that you have to choose one or the other. The church is commissioned to follow Christ's example and teachings exclusively, which brings it into conflict with the state and its roles. Because we are called to be agents of mercy and salvation, to call mankind to reject sin and follow our Lord. There is one verse that I'm going to talk about first. John 8. 1836, he says, Jesus is talking to Pilate in response to a question. Are you a kingdom? He said, yes, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. This is a classic verse that the Anabaptists often use to state their position of government, a heavenly kingdom, not of this world. But this 
statement that Jesus made to Pilate did not come in a vacuum. It didn't just come that now Jesus is going to state. It was actually the a, a, a full summary of his life and teachings. During his ministry, he always avoided the crowd's effort to make him a king. You know, he did that. They wanted to make him a king, and he avoided that. When the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world, he outright rejected it because he had another path to way to go. When he was finally asked by his disciples, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom there after his resurrection just before he ascended? He just said, it's not for you to know. That's none of your business when the kingdom is going to come. That's not your business, but I'm going to give you a business. And he gave them the spirit and the gospel. Now, it was generally expected that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a powerful ruler and he's going to deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies, from their oppressors. They were expecting a political ruler. But he disappointed every one of those people who had that vision. Think with me. If Jesus would have blamed the Romans... And he would have supported the Jewish national renewal. If Jesus would have done that, he would have been a hero. He would have gotten a following, a mass following. But what did he do instead? He talked about personal regeneration of a willingness to suffer and to sacrifice with never a hope of any earthly glory or any earthly nation. And for that, he was crucified. His teaching was of love and humility and suffering, not of conquest and glory and vengeance. He didn't uphold clear Old Testament law when the woman was caught in adultery He didn't uphold that law. Instead of condemnation came release and an admonition. Go and sin no more. And that statement, my kingdom is not of this world, is not just about Jesus. It's about all his followers as well. Because... They also are in this other worldly kingdom. And so they act differently than if they were in the kingdom of this world. The assumption is clear. If they were in an earthly kingdom, they would fight. They would not allow. Uh, they would not allow. They must fight to keep what you have. You must not allow something to be taken from you. You must defend yourselves. You must band together for protection. But Jesus, in contrast, tells his disciples, when he sent them out to preach in the community, he told them, I send you as wolves. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) I send you as sheep among wolves. And he told them, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. That's what Jesus told his disciples. It took them a while to get it. That there was not going to be an earthly kingdom. That there was not going to be fighting. That there was not going to be conquest. That there was not going to be an overtaking of the oppressors. They didn't get it. Jesus was teaching it. He talked about the cross. He talked about death. He talked about sacrifice. He, he talked about being harmless and being as sheep among wolves. All those things. He was teaching that. And in the end, he told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And so in his mind, you know, he was clear. But his followers, it took them a while to catch on. And still does today, doesn't it? (laughs) Still does today. So, 
The fact that Jesus had not allowed his disciples to fend him was evident enough of the fact that there is a definite separation between his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. Christ's kingdom is a heavenly one and seeks the reconciliation of the sinner to God. But the civil and world governments are of this earth and seek for power and supremacy. Now, the, this separation of church and state is not an Old Testament teaching. God separated Abraham from his old people, from his own people, to make of him a great nation. As a nation, when that nation developed out of Egypt, then God gave them the laws. He gave them his laws to restraining of evil and the punishment of the evildoer. And he placed the sword in their hand and he told them to use it. Or he placed stones in their hands sometimes. (laughs) Told them to use it. He used it to bring judgment also on other ungodly nations in the conquest of Canaan. So Israel's civil law demanded life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. God also charged Israel with a spiritual ministry. He worked through them to reconcile other people. They were to be, um, they were to be like a, a light in the world. Uh, they could see a country where God's people follow God's laws. And, and it was supposed to be a, uh, a, for the glory of God. So in this sense, the Jewish nation embodied both the responsibility of an earthly kingdom and the responsibility of a heavenly kingdom. They were both embodied in Israel. In the change of the covenants, the role of church and state have been separated. No longer is it God's people's, is it responsibility of God's people to execute vengeance on the evildoer. And no longer is it the responsibility of the state to be a standard bearer of truth. Both of them are are changed. No longer do God's people execute vengeance on God's enemies. No longer does the state have the responsibility to be a standard bearer of God's laws. Both of them. So there are now two entities with diverse goals and diverse interests. Failure to see the difference between the two covenants leads to confusion and then to misapplication of the New Testament doctrine. And this is the main reason why most Christians are involved in government's functions, in governments in function that are disobedient to the example and teachings of Jesus. Sometimes Islam and Christianity are compared. Today, this is modern times. It may have been in history too. Islam has historically and is still presently a religion of conquest. Christians tend to look at Islam as a violent religion. Now, some people defend the Muslim by pointing out all the wars and the genocides and the capital punishments found in the Old Testament as well. And they say, look, Christians are very violent also. Look at all the atrocities that are done. In the name of God, in the Old Testament. And then look at all the atrocities that are done by the Christians in the New Testament era. And of course you could mention all those things I had mentioned before. The Crusades and so on. Christianity is also a violent religion, they say. We can start by comparing Mohammed with Jesus. Mohammed was a warlord. And his followers spread their 
religion by the sword and conquest. And they just simply by force overtook other nations and other peoples and brought them into subjection to their religion. Whatever you say or think of Jesus, you definitely cannot say he was a warlord. That nobody says that of the Lord Jesus. And neither were his followers. They spread the gospel, Christianity, throughout the known world without shedding one drop of blood in conquest. On the part of the Christians. There was a lot of bloodshed, but not on part of the Christians. They did not establish earthly nations. And if, continue, if Christians would have continued to follow the Lord in that way, there wouldn't have been those violent conquests later on. The main purpose of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament was to preserve a righteous remnant through which God could send a Savior into the world. Now, that might be a debatable statement. Maybe there's other, maybe there's other things you say, well, no, that's the main purpose. But let's say it this way. A major purpose, as God, as history was going through, and you had the flood, and you had Babel, and so on, God set a nation aside, a people aside, where he was going to bring his Savior through. It was a remnant. Where the most of the world went their own way, but he kept a remnant, and he brought the Savior. So the nation of Israel, one of the main reasons for the nation was to have a godly remnant for the Savior to come through. But now that the Savior has come, he has that the need for that nation in that um, capacity is past. Now there is a new kingdom established, and this is the worldwide kingdom. No longer does God rule a nation by his people. No longer do his people force compliance to God's laws on other people. And the new mantra is in his prayer, is in the world, but not of the world. So for the rest of the message, I will limit myself to a critique of two common but wrong ideas or views of church and state, followed by the Bible view the best that I understand it. Now the first is the common patriotic American Christian view. This view could be divided into numerous subcategories. There are those who believe that the Old Testament pattern of Israel is to be followed in the present time. The Puritans who came from England to Massachusetts believed that very strongly. In fact, they, they are the first ones that began to use religious, not religious, Bible language to include a nation-state, like a city set on a hill, the nation. Um, there are some others I can't think of right now. But they use Christ's kingdom terminology and applied it to their nation-state and religious. And they effectively denied the separation of church and state. They felt it was the Christian's responsibility to make sure people obey God's laws. I remember it was a book that I read about Noah Webster. He grew up in Connecticut. He grew up in Puritan New England. And he grew up in the rigidness of their social structure. And he went down... When he got older, he did some more traveling, and he remember he went down to Maryland, down to Baltimore. And he was shocked at the looseness and laxity of the, their, the way they lived down there because they didn't have that 
what they had up in England. Up in England, it was, it was a cultural thing that was enforced by the state and religious together. Now, that has distilled down to what we see in our day, and that's the call for Christians to be involved in politics and voting and running for office with the purpose of enacting righteous laws. That's the purpose today. Have righteous rulers so they can have righteous laws. And I know that Eldon did an excellent job a few years ago when he said that a good state, what we call a good state, one that's friendly toward the Christians, does not always, in fact, many times, does not end up with a strong church. (laughs) And that a government that is against Christianity often corresponds with a strong church. And so... um, we tend to think often like, oh, we want righteous, we need to get, get those right people in there and, and, uh, boot out those liberals that are just destroying our society and we, we, we think in those terms. You know what I'm talking about. We think in those terms. And, and I don't think it's wrong to think in those terms, but it's not right to think that that is automatically going to be better for God's people. Let's say it that way. So, what we do today is a call for Christians to be involved in politics and voting for the purpose of enacting righteous laws. And that includes war against what is considered evil empires or other threats to the vision of a godly society. Many religious people feel that a Christian can operate in the government. He just operates on different levels. In church and at home, he operates on Christ's principles. He uh, turns the other cheek. He loves his neighbor as himself. He gives soft answers. Then in government, he um, is called to sentence wrongdoers, shoot down enemies, and flip the switch of the electric chair. And the same man can do both. That's the common view. In this view, both kingdoms operate in one man. And a man's spiritual beliefs are are separated from his physical actions. And this is the, the common Protestant view that inherited from Luther and Swingley and Calvin. So this is the common conservative American view. Many Protestant preachers and teachers, if you listen to Protestant preachers and teachers, this is very likely what they believe. And some of them actually um, been in the army or the service themselves. And the level of involvement goes, it varies. It goes from allowing involvement to actually actively promoting it. And in fact, I've heard it said, it is a sin not to go and vote for the best candidate that you can. It is a sin not to do so. Because their viewpoint is, we have a responsibility for this nation to enact righteous laws so that the people will at least outwardly obey God. That's the thinking. And therefore, under that thinking, it would be a sin. But that is not what God calls us to do. Here's a... Some Mennonites, as they were moving into the Protestant camp, an explanation they gave for doing so. uh, He says, we've decided that the bridge between the church and the world is not an unbridgeable unbridgeable chasm. We have become politically engaged, believing Christians 
actually live in both kingdoms. Then we try to sort out the uncertainties and the gray areas that come from having a foot in each. But the New Testament erases those gray areas. And it clearly shows that the two kingdoms cannot operate in the same person. And uh, I like a short selection of passages that demonstrate this. John 17, 14 and 15. Jesus is praying to his father. He said, I have given them thy word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Matthew five thirty-eight to 40. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. 43 to 45. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And Second Corinthians 6 14 to 18. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come ye out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Christ did not give his followers the task of preserving the nation, other than being a salt and a light in that nation. Rather, we've been assigned to teach that we cannot hope in this worldly system. And we actually cannot halt the world's decline. We are on a ship that is sinking, but we have a lifeboat. That is our calling to pull people into that lifeboat. So we have the common patriotic view that we believe is wrong because it mixes the two kingdoms until it is impossible to obey Christ as Lord. And like I said, this view is more attractive to people who are tend to be conservative-minded. The second view is the pacifist view. Again, I'm going to be woefully inadequate in describing this because this is broad and it's long, but I'm going to do my best. Maybe its danger does not exist here, but maybe it does. There are Christian pacifists and there are non-Christian pacifists. Maybe I should actually give a description of a pacifist. A pacifist is somebody who is opposed to violence. It's one that seeks for uh, answers in the world besides um, conflict and war. And we think, well, that sounds great. And actually it is. Um, We believe in a certain kind of that but not the kind I want to describe here. It's interesting that Buddhism and Hinduism have pacifism at their core as well. And as as the East, Eastern religions become more common in our country, 
more people become pacifists from that angle. And any time a so-called Christian moves from a conservative to a liberal stance on scriptures, many of them become pacifists. That's actually what happened to the mainstream Mennonite church. They became pacifists and communists in the mid-1900s as they left their roots and latched on to the social gospel. I, I saw pictures. I was looking for it this morning, but I couldn't find it. I saw pictures of uh, Mennonite peacemakers on a peace mission talking with guerrilla warriors somewhere in the either the jungles or the mountains of Central America somewhere, talking talking to the guerrilla leaders and trying to persuade them to give up their fight and come to the negotiating table and discuss. That's a peacemaker. Well, blessed are the peacemakers, right? God says, blessed are the peacemakers. Here are Christians trying to make peace. That sounds like a good thing, does it not? Well, there's more to it, and I'll explain a little bit more. Just a few more areas. The vegetarian movement is pacifism, moved into the animal kingdom. Okay? Vegetarianism has its roots in pacifism. So do elements, I say elements, of the organic food movement. <laughs> There's, they, have, they have the elements of the Eastern religion and, and those herbs and all those things. And pacifism is mixed in elements of that, uh, in uh, some parts of that. So what's wrong with pacifism, though, we might say? Well, it does not have a two-kingdom view. It doesn't see the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God as two separate entities. Instead, pacifism is a method um, or a way to act to run this present world system. It's opposed to war and violence. But it does not call its people to another kingdom or another lord. Its focus is still on improving this earthly kingdom, the powers that be. And so you have a conservative side, they want to improve the earthly kingdom, and you have this side, they also want to improve the earthly kingdom. That's what's wrong with it. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pacifist. He opposed, he was opposed to violence to achieve his goals. He was an activist. He stirred up people to action. He motivated people to a certain way of thinking and a certain way of acting. And his action was to stir, to write the injustices that had exist in the culture for so long, and so he was strongly promoting a societal change. But though he used religious terms, and, it, and I, I don't know, I, I listened to or I read some of his some of his uh, rhetoric from back then. He uses lots of religious terms, and he should have been. He was a Baptist preacher, a liberal one. But what did he do? Well, he did not call the people to repentance, to repent of their sins and follow the Lord Jesus. As a preacher, he should have been doing that, but that's not what he was doing. Instead, he's known for advancing civil rights through nonviolent means and civil disobedience. One of his inspires in that area was Gandhi. From India, and Gandhi was a Hindu, and you see the connection right there again. Gandhi over uh, helped overthrow 
the British from India rule through the same methods. They're pacifists. So here's the deception in this area. He was calling society to act in Christian ways in certain areas, but it was not calling people to give their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, should you love your neighbor? Yes. Should you not discriminate? Yes. Should you view some people as lower than others? No. So there was some good causes there. And he was lifting up those causes, but it was way, way, way short of the gospel of the kingdom. It was a political human endeavor. Some of us have watched a debate that Dean Taylor and David Pershaw had with those two college professors, Just War. What was somewhat interesting about about um, that debate is that those college professors were prepared to debate the pacifist view. The one kingdom viewpoint where pacifists think that the earthly kingdom should be run with nonviolent means. That's what they were prepared to debate. And they came, and Dean and David just gave the two-kingdom perspective in a very clear way. And they were totally, totally unprepared to debate that viewpoint. That's what I meant, but there is an enormous difference between pacifism and the two-kingdom worldview. Now, how does that affect us? It is the call to be socially active to relieve the suffering in this world caused by human sin. That call goes out. That's a strong call today. But rather than sacrificing and ministering to the needs of the world along with the true gospel, this changes into an attempt to change the structure of the world Let's say this is, this is not worded very well. At the expense of living for the eternal kingdom. Now that's very bad wording. Let me just say it this way. We must care for the people. Let, let's, let's just go on here. We are to follow the example of Christ. He gave the example of the good Samaritan. Here was a person in need. You are to help people in need. When they're in a crisis situation, help them. We are to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. If we are rich in this world, we are to be rich in good works and willing to share and communicate. And I say all of us are rich. So that's not a, that's not a problem. The world has many problems. But its main problem is sin. Its main problem is its rebellion against God. Its main problem is that it will not bow its knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we are doing good, we cannot ever forsake that one. And so pacifism and the social gospel can become an alternative to the true gospel. And that's where the deception lies. And as such, it must be rejected in the same way that patriotism is rejected. It bypasses the cross and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus could easily have become a military ruler and taken care of the oppression that was over Israel. He could have restored Israel to its glory with its righteous laws and a glorious king. He could have done that. He had the ability to do that. He could also have set up a welfare state. After all, he had a healing ministry and he's able to feed the thousands. 
he could have set up a a um, a kingdom where you just take care of people. But neither of those issues were the main problem. He rejected both. Instead, he went the way of apparent weakness and the cross. He went the way of humility and lowliness. He went the way of vulnerability and suffering. Of patience and sacrifice and loss. He went as a sheep among wolves. He went harmless as a dove. That's how he went. But he also went the way of strength and commitment and courage and tenacity and love and character. That's the way he went. And the way he went was harder than the other two options. No greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his friend. That's the way that Jesus went. So for this Independence Week, what should we do in respect to our government? I'm going to have a little bit of that. And I have four words. Pray. Pay. Respect. And obey. Pray, pay, respect, and obey. That's how we should live in respect to our government. Pray. Thank God for the government. He established it. This world would be a lot worse place were it not for governments in this world. Imperfect governments. Governments that are run on the glory of men. And... And there's a, always a certain amount of corruption in government. And there's always a certain amount of self-interest. And there's always, you don't have a perfect thing, but it's better. We should thank God for our government. Pray for the government. And then we have the verse here in First uh, Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And so here we have a very clear will of God. We are to pray for the government and pray it for this purpose. And of course, if you go on in the verses to say what a purpose that we have to live Quietly and peaceably is so that we have the liberty to go. <laughs> but um, I think, as Eldon has said already, God has promised us certain things, but there's a lot of things he has not promised us that we are just blessed with above and beyond. A nice government is one of those things, what we call a nice government. Peace, godliness, peaceable and quiet life, that we're able to live that, is a blessing that is not guaranteed us, is not promised us. But God says, pray for it. Pray for them. Pray for their souls. Pray that that they would choose proper um equitable, just ways in society. Pray for that. And then pay. Pay taxes. I think that's what it means. I think so. And agree with me? Pay means pay taxes? Okay. Now you put your hands up, some of you. How many of you like to pay taxes? Oh. Okay, let me read 13, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. And uh, it's just going to continuation of, of a, ma- a number of subjects in here. 
that every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power or no authority but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must need be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And here's the part that we're looking at now. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So when you pay, it means taxes. It actually means more than that. <laughs> but the next one is respect and will. That actually goes right into the next one. Pay your taxes and we look at our taxes and we see waste in government. We see people in corruption. Some of it disappears and all those things. God says, pray and then pay. And then respect. Respect the government. First Peter 2.17, just a few words. Honor the king. Now, that's the same word. I didn't check it, but I'm assuming it's the same word as to say, children, honor your parents. Does that mean that you should not despairingly speak of your parents? Does it mean that you should actually um, have respect for them and look up to them? I think it does. Well, we live... It's always been this way that people were dishonoring to government officials, I'm sure, but it's becoming, let's say, that there's an, I don't know, there's sometimes there's new words that become into vogue, and one new word that's coming into vogue is, I don't know if I can say, uncivility. <laughs> In other words, you're not civil anymore. People are very dishonoring to each other in the political realm especially. Now, can we be a part of that if we honor the king? If we render their due, tribute, custom, fear, honor. You know, we say those jokes. It's time that Washington curbs their own emissions. And not that from my pickup truck. And you can have joke after joke after joke. What would Jesus do? There is a place. There is a place to challenge and to rebuke a government official. But... I think we should be people of respect and honor. Not agreement, not giving credence to everything they do, but of respect. And then obey. And if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bared not the sword in vain. Wherefore you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for Conscience sake. So obey the government. God has put the government in place to keep order, keep structure. To um, I, I think of the, the many, many blessings that we have from our government, imperfect as it is. Um, they can do things that 
in a sense that no private individuals can do. I can, I can do my job. I can get in my delivery truck and I can go hundreds of miles on government roads that are paid by taxes and, and then they have laws organized to set all that up. And then you can go on and on and you can elaborate on all the things that it does. Obey the government and respect it, honor it, pay for it. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the people of God. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is a radical kingdom. That's what the early Anabaptists actually were categorized as. They were the radical wing of the Reformation. The radical wing. They were actually the left wing. They actually weren't the right wing. If you look in modern political terms, they were the left wing. Revolutionaries. Thinkers. Radical. This radical view allowed for no compromise. And no compromise with the state system. While the, the, the concern of the rest of the Reformation was to restructure the organized church without shaking it off its foundations, that's what the rest of the Reformation wanted to do. They wanted to reform the church, restructure the church, but not shake it off its foundations. The Anabaptists were radicals. Their goal was not the purification of the existing Christianity, but rather the separation of congregations of believers from the world. There's perhaps no more telling testimony on behalf of those Anabaptists at that time than if a man didn't drink in excess, curse, or abuse his workmen or his family, he could be arrested on suspicion of being an Anabaptist. The people of God, the radicals, it doesn't allow any compromise with sin. It expected and required complete allegiance and complete obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his teaching. It accepted the New Testament as a new and higher moral life that was enabled by the Spirit of God that was given after Pentecost. So the New Testament is not a continuation of the old. It is a new moral, higher moral life. And it's enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. It is radical. As such, we separate from anything of compromise, whether it's the world's music, whether it's the world's fashions, whether it's the world's movies, or it's sports, or it's carnal force. Any, any kind of watering down of God's word given in the New Testament is to be rejected. And that way is the way of the cross. That way is the way of humility and meekness. That way does not promote earthly glory. And many times that way brings suffering. But God has a timetable. It will take patience and endurance and suffering. 
God did say that there's not many noble called, not many wise are called. In fact, he has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. That's the way Christ has chosen, God has chosen. So, by going his way, it seems foolish most of the time from the world. But, I think as Micah shared this morning, it's that, and, and I've actually heard messages, let's say this, I've already heard messages around Independence Day of, of um, free in Christ, the independence that we have in Christ. This is the way and the pathway to true independence, but we actually call it dependence. That's really what it is, <laughs> dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I the thing at the close of this message and the whole reason again is because do we understand the major difference between most of Christianity so called and different um, aberrations of it and versus the true way of the gospel the true gospel of Jesus Christ we are called to this experience of radical discipleship and then to call others to that same discipleship. So may God bless you. Um, that is my, my effort to communicate the truth of the gospel. And uh, I welcome your input. I welcome your corrections and your additions to that. May God bless you.